From the Asset Builder headquarters in Dallas, Texas, welcome to Keep It Simple, a show that discusses simple techniques and philosophies to help de-stressify investors around the world. I'm your host, Jared Herzog, and welcome to the show. Today, we're talking once again to the legendary Andrew Hallam. We also have Michael French, our usual host, uh, attending the conversation as well. And today, we talked about retiring abroad and a whole swath of other topics, too. It was a great conversation. And so without further ado, guys, thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Let's get to the show. All right. How are you guys doing today, gentlemen? Andrew, how are you doing? Really well, thanks. And Michael? How's it going? I'm doing I'm doing exceptionally well. Well, thank you so much for joining me today on our special episode with both world-renowned author Andrew Hallam and our very own CIO and regular host correspondent Michael French. Today, we're pitching Andrew a few questions about retiring abroad. But first, Michael would like to start with a quick question about dividends. Michael, take it away. Hey, Andrew. Uh, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. Um, one of the things that that we frequently get questions about, and I think it's something that uh, I guess I'm going to go on the assumption that if we get questions about it, you might get the same questions um, from people who are retired. And especially now, they ask us a lot of questions about dividends, um, questions around things like, should I look for stocks that uh, have a higher growth potential? Or should I look for stocks and maybe funds, because we're, we're generally looking at funds, but investments that pay a dividends? And so um, if, we, if we set aside things like REITs and we just focused on equity uh, companies, do you ever, when you're talking to people or when you think through this, what advice do you give people on which of those two uh, options to pursue? Or what's your general thoughts there well it's pretty interesting you know because you get so many people thinking i think i think people often overvalue dividends in terms of receiving them like distributing them instead of having them reinvested and and i think of an example like warren buffett's berkshire hathaway and and i think that any serious investor should really read lawrence cunningham's book um the essays of warren buffett which are basically a a collection thematically collected pieces of the shareholder letters that Warren Buffett's been writing to his shareholders for well since 1965 and he's so consistent with his tenets and what mm-hmm. he believes which which makes it really cool if you if you've read through a lot of his essays you can and I've done this it's kind of fun you can actually listen to his uh you can go to one of his shareholder meetings where you can listen to the questions that are posed to him and yeah. you you can know what he's going to say before he says it. That's how consistent he is yeah. on this. And, and the thing I find really interesting is Berkshire Hathaway, obviously, as a company, doesn't pay a dividend. Mm-hmm. And, and you, you could argue that somebody could say, well, why is it hoarding so much cash? You could, you could suggest that a company like Apple really should not be paying a dividend either. So I'll give you his example in terms of how he thinks and how he sees things. He says repeatedly when he's writing about dividends, is he says that if a company, so if we're talking about individual stocks now, if mm-hmm. it has a high return on total capital, what that means is it potentially has a better use for that money than paying you a dividend. So 
every time a company pays a dividend, like let's say I, I own a, you could, you could simplify it and say I own a 7-Eleven store and yeah. Jared's a shareholder and let's say my store nets me, me you know, nets uh, revenue, after-tax revenue of let's say whatever, $100,000. If I give $50,000 to Jared, I've essentially reduced the value of my store that year by $50,000. Now I have a choice. Right. I can keep that $50,000 and reinvest it, which might end up being I'm going to buy, reinvest it in advertising or maybe even a new store. Um, and if my return on total capital, meaning the money that I can gain on that reinvestment, is higher than what Jared would be getting with that $50,000, then Jared, as my share partner should much prefer that I reinvest the dividend. So you could take an example of Apple. Um, return on total capital in 2017 was 21.8%. 2018 and 2019, it averaged about 30%. So when Apple's paying its dividend, what I believe is Apple is just doing that as a bit of a, as a result of a little bit of shareholder pressure. Shareholders often believe that the, the dividend payout, that the company is being somewhat selfish by hoarding that cash. But in essence, if Apple can make 30% on total capital invested, Apple can increase its stock price faster, long term, because that's what people are often looking at. It can increase the value of its business. In essence, then, of course, as a result of that, eventually the stock price, and that's what people care about. But it can increase the stock price faster than if Apple paid out the dividend. So Apple does pay out the dividend, but I think it does that to satisfy shareholders. What Warren Buffett says, too, which makes total sense, is when Apple earns revenue, and any company earns revenue, it's taxed on that revenue. When it then gives out a dividend, the investor is taxed on that. But if you own Apple shares, you are essentially an owner of the company. So you get taxed twice by receiving the dividend in the taxable account. Once you get taxed on the corporate level, because you are an owner of Apple. So if you own Apple, you get taxed on the corporate level for the income that they've received. And then you receive the dividend and you get taxed again. And so this is one of the reasons why Warren Buffett doesn't generally like it when a company with really high return on total capital pays a load of money off into dividends. And that's one of the reasons why Berkshire Hathaway, which has a, a high return on total capital, he has educated over the many, many years, he has educated his shareholders such that they now recognize that they don't put a lot of pressure on Berkshire Hathaway to make that decision to pay out the dividend because their return on total capital is higher than what they could earn if they'd received that dividend themselves and then reinvested that. Does that make sense? It does. It's, it's, I think it's a good, first of all, if you take the dividend yourself and you think you have better investment opportunities than Warren Buffett, you're probably kidding yourself. Uh, if you think you're more disciplined than he is, you're probably kidding yourself. So it, it totally makes sense. It uh, pretty much is in line with uh, the advice we give people and the, way, the, the, the funds that we look for. Uh, typically, it's the same philosophy. So uh, let me ask you this. Were you, when you say you could kind of anticipate what he was going to say, or, you know, when you, when you listen to his shareholder meetings, were you surprised when he entirely exited uh, the airline industry? Yeah. You know, I'll tell you the funniest thing about Buffett. This is the one weird quirk. 
uh, he has called himself now for <clears throat> for decades. He's called himself an airaholic, and, <laughs> and, and here's where I love Buffett because he's so darn honest. But he actually has always talked about his major problem, and he said this in in many of the uh, the, the, the letters to shareholders. He said the airline industry on aggregate has not made money, and he's joked about how capitalists really should have shot down Wilbur Wright. <laughs> on, his, on his virgin flight because if you look That's at all the bank, if you look at all the bankruptcies and the monies that airlines yep. have lost it's it actually exceeds all of the monies that airlines have made so we look at the survivors but of course when you really start looking into all of the airline companies that have gone bust and you start doing the math, you realize, wow, this is all. This is a challenging industry to make money in. So Buffett has always said that, and he's always said, my weakness though is, is I'm an airaholic. And he gets into these things like net jets, and he gets into these airlines. But he's always said from the beginning that on aggregate, this industry has not made money. So I am a hundred percent not surprised that he's finally, finally <laughs> actually started to to to, to practice what he's been preaching forever. And I wish he were here across the table from me because I think, I think I, I'd love to have, I'd have loved to have lunch with him. I think he'd have a really good laugh over this and he'd kind of, he's an honest guy and then he'd go, you know what, you're, you're right. <laughs> yeah, that is funny. It, 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 it would actually be uh, an interesting podcast if Jared could get that together. You and Warren Buffett. Okay. I would... I would love to listen to that one. So, Jared, if you can get on that. Sure. So, so Jared. I'll text him. Jared, yeah. Jared I'm, I might be your connection there. Warren Buffett, um, oddly enough, and this is just a, a fun little side story, but uh, I went to the shareholders meeting uh, a number of years ago. I don't know if you know this story, Michael, about uh, when I sent Warren Buffett a postcard. <laughs> yes, I've heard it. Yeah, I asked if I could sleep on his, uh, in his garage or in his, on his sofa. Because <laughs> um, uh, I noticed there were no no hostels in Omaha, Nebraska, and he ended up he got this postcard, and I, I wrote it in a in a class. I had a grade eleven English students, and I was telling the kids like you know if you want to try and capture someone's attention, here are a few things that you can try and think about. And I said let's use an example here. Let me write a postcard to Warren Buffett. And, uh, and it, you know, it was, it was quirky enough. Uh, he sent it off to the Wall Street Journal, and they wanted to write a story about it titled Warren Buffett's Bed and Breakfast. And, uh, <laughs> and long story short, um, he ended up, I mean, the Wall Street Journal ended up uh, writing the story, and I did end up meeting him, which was a lot of fun. Um, and, uh, and when I write to him, and I've done it a couple of times since then, the guy writes back, which is which wow. is amazing. Which is amazing. Awesome. I mean, I kind of. I mean, it hasn't been. A, it's been a while now since I've since I've sent him anything or written him anything. But uh, I sent him a copy of my book. Um, just said, not looking for anything. Not looking for an endorsement. Not looking for a blurb. Just wanted to really thank you for being like a great educational inspiration for me. Sent him a copy of the book, and uh, yeah, he's a he's a class act for sure. But I think a lot of people are always asking for things from people like that, um, yeah. and it's kind of nice yeah. just to. Be, if you really appreciate someone, to re, especially someone who is, quote, unattainable, give to them. Don't take from them. That's what's cool about I think Good that's advice. what's kind of cool about that little mini relationship I had with them. That's we, really cool. Um, 
when I was early, earlier in my career, I was a consultant and I lived for about six months in Omaha. And it was funny because like, you know, you would drive by his house or you would find out what his favorite restaurant was. And it was nothing that you would have imagined. He is so unpretentious, such a laid back, you know, presence in Omaha. So I can imagine he would be somebody that uh, would fit well with like your entire philosophy, how you think about things. He, it just strikes me as the type of person that you would be friends with and people would be not shocked, I, I guess. I, yeah, I, I so. think John Vogel was a lot like that too. So um, I would send John mm-hmm. Vogel letters and the guy would write them by hand. He would send me handwritten letters. Wow. Um, and he'd, he'd take his time wow. doing it. You know, it was really cool. Wow. That is neat. That's really cool. <laughs> so, so Andrew, one of the things that we talk about, one of the things that, that are kind of that we've been focusing on is the fact that if you're a U.S. investor and you invest in um, and, and you're living in the United States, you're earning money in the United States, but you invest in, a, in an emerging market or in any international country, um, what happens is you take that dollar, you trans, uh, you transfer it to another country, your exchange rate, let's say you go uh, to Thailand, you get your Thai bot, you uh, then the, the fund manager invests that money overseas. Um, if the country does well, uh, or sorry, if the company in Thailand does well, um, at the end of the year, you have, let's say a 10% return but if the U.S. dollar has strengthened relative to that Thai bot, uh, when you try to bring that money back to the United States, you actually can experience less than that 10% return. And so a strong U.S. dollar for a U.S.-based uh, investor and consumer, uh, you have to think long and hard about whether or not you want to uh, invest in these different other countries. And so I'm curious because you spend so much time uh, speaking to expats and addressing their questions and their needs. Um, How do you counsel people or advise people to think through their situation when they're thinking about, um, you know, maybe I'm an expat who is from country A, but I'm working in country B. Maybe I even want to retire in country C. Um, how do you generally think through the logic of how they should uh, invest, or does it affect their investments at all? Well, well, I don't think if if you're looking at, um, I mean, one of the one of the easiest ways that I think to invest is just to build a, a globally diversified portfolio of index funds whereby you have exposure to the world's currencies. And, and the idea, I suppose, if somebody does move to Thailand, they're retiring there and they choose to buy a business, well, they're going to be paying their bills in Thai bot. The company is going to be earning Thai bot. That's the, the Thai currency. So for them, how the U.S. dollar really performs relative to them is, is inconsequential. Their only real risk is whether that company in Thai baht is going to make money for them because Thai baht is the currency from which they're going to be spending. But of course, huge risk associated with that going into a foreign country and trying to figure out you know, what business makes sense to actually invest in. I think for most people, 
just having that globally diversified portfolio of index funds gives them exposure to loads of different currencies. And people don't, many people don't understand that part of it. They'll think, well, okay, I, I receive my, I can see what the, my rate of return is for my total portfolio in, let's say, U.S. dollars. And they'll think it's a U.S. dollar investment. And it's only partially a U.S. dollar investment. It's also a, a an investment in euros and Canadian dollars and Australian dollars and Swiss francs. So the nice thing about it is it's fully diversified. Obviously, as one currency ends up dropping and that portfolio is rebalanced, um, in essence, just by rebalancing it, you're actually rebalancing not just the equity portions, but you're actually without even really knowing it because it goes on internally, you're actually rebalancing currencies as well. But, so I think you know, this in turn, long term, ends up reducing risk. And, and, I, and then one thing too, I, I can imagine, Michael, that you end up getting a lot of people that get, they get a bit concerned when they'll look at the rising US dollar, let's say they've got their international stock market or their emerging market uh, portion and they're saying, well, I'm really not making any money here. Um, those companies are making money, but because the U.S. dollar has risen, it really looks like the international stocks, the emerging market stocks, are making nothing as a result. That takes me back, personally, to sort of the period between, say, 2001 and, and say, 2011, the period where the U.S. market really went nowhere. So you, you've got your lost decade, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So, where we can say, okay, U.S. stocks really, really didn't go anywhere. Up, down, up, down, up, down. But on aggregate, even including reinvested dividends, it really didn't make money for a decade. Um, so for a lot of us, like you could take my example here as a Canadian. I have a Canadian stock index, a U.S. stock index, international stock index, and a Canadian bond index. Uh, it was even worse for Canadians to own a U.S. stock index during that time because right. in 2001, to, for us to buy a U.S. dollar, it was a dollar sixty Canadian in two thousand one. So, uh, in essence, we're really looking at that period of the beginning of the last decade. Now, take me to two thousand thirteen. Ninety eight cents Canadian to buy one U.S. dollar. Mm-hmm. Think about that. You've got the Canadian dollar climbed sixty two percent during against the USD during a time period. Where measured in USD, the U.S. stock market went nowhere over a dozen years. Right. So yeah. this this is really important for U.S. Some people might be listening to this saying, well, how does this affect me? I'm an American. No, no, it absolutely affects you because it is the exact same thing. Now, what we can have here is we can have people saying, well, I don't want any part of a U.S. stock index because not only has it gone zero or gone nowhere in their own currency, it's lost us money for 12 years, which it did measured in Canadian dollars. And so anyone who gave up on US stock market index, and trust me, there were people doing it. I mean, it it is the biggest market in the world, but during that 12 year period, you had the US dollar dropping relative to, a lot of drops relative to the Euro as well, drops relative to the Australian dollar and drops relative to the Canadian dollar. We had periods there where the U.S. dollar was was dramatically sinking, and so we we being the people that measure the 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 index the U.S. index in an alternative currency, we were getting hammered 
by U.S. stocks. They were going, not only were they going nowhere, but they were going down the toilet as far as many of us could see. So the risk here is saying, well, whatever has happened over the last 10 years is going to continue to happen. So I don't want any part of a U.S. stock market index. And that's where it's relative to an American right now. So an American might say, oh, look, international and emerging markets are not doing well. Well, they're not doing well because the U.S. dollar has been rising considerably. And that's how they're measuring this as well. So giving up on it now is, is the worst thing an investor can do. So overall, it, currencies are a zero-sum game. But owning all of them in a diversified portfolio and rebalancing them is the key to, to reducing the overall risk. Because as we know, you know, after 2013, I don't know if you guys know, but the U.S. dollar started to strengthen against the Canadian dollar, the Australian dollar, and the euro. And so in our Canadian dollar terms, we got, we got uh, serious reward for hanging in there. Because not only did the U.S. market rise... But we got a big bang for our buck, too, because the U.S. dollar rose as a, in conjunction with that. So it was an amazingly profitable period. But it was only profitable for the people that were buying in and rebalancing, buying in, buying in, rebalancing during that time period when we considered the U.S. stock market index in USD to be a dud. Let me ask you this. When you talk about a globally diversified portfolio, do you think of that in terms of market cap weighted? Do you and, and does it matter to you when you're talking to people where they live, where they're going to retire, or do you just say, hey, generally, because there's too many permutations there, just have a globally diversified portfolio and market weighted? Or, or how do you assess what you mean by globally diversified? If they so for. If they're going to be retiring in an emerging market country, especially if it's emerging market, I think it should be for sure global market cap. And so based on that, no real bias towards any one country and certainly no bias, essential bias at all to the, the currency within that emerging market. Because once you do that and you have a bias towards the, the Thai bot or the Thai stock index, which would give you a, mm -hmm. a, a bias towards a Thai bot, you're dealing with really volatile currencies. So if you then have a, a globally diversified portfolio based on market cap, I think it's just, this is far safer for that person who's going to be retiring in that emerging market country. And I, and I can understand um, people that aren't going to be retiring in an emerging market. I can see the two arguments here that to me, both they both make some sense, where globally diversified market cap or a, a first country, home country bias. So give you an example, in, in Canada, what most of us will do is we will have a Canadian stock component, then we'll have a global stock component, and then we'll have a, a, a Canadian bond component, which is essentially what you guys have. Essentially, you're a little bit more weighted on the US equities. Most portfolios in the US are anyway. Um, they have that slight right. home country bias. And there is an argument to suggest that um, it can reduce a home country currency risk because you're going to have a little bit of a higher exposure to the U.S. dollar. You are paying your future bills as a retiree in U.S. dollars. So, so this does make some sense. So I could see an argument for that, too. Um, so yeah. let me ask you this. It, it kind of along those same lines, when you think about paying bills and we think about, like, I look at the amount of, 
the debt to GDP ratio in the United States, and it, it just continues to expand. Nobody really seems to have the stomach to turn off the spigot. We'll just continue to print money. Um, and you look out, and I think it's fascinating how people think about inflation, uh, and then the fact that treasuries today, tips specifically, would kind of indicate that people don't expect inflation to be a big problem for us. If Again, you're a person who, you know, wants to retire overseas uh, or is, is seriously contemplating it or you're an expat. How do you think about inflation? Do you think about it in terms of where am I going to pay these future bills? Or do you think of it in terms of where can I get the best re inflation adjusted return, um, real return? How do you how do you walk through that process in your head when you're when you're thinking about it? Yeah, it's funny because I, I get asked that question a lot um, when I'm down to in, in Mexico, current people talking about currency mm. and, and inflation. And I'll, I'll give you an example of, um, I mean, in the late 70s, one of the hottest places to retire for an expatriate was Argentina. Argentina was just could be mm -hmm. was just considered one of the best places in the world to retire, um, and that was really before they ended up having so many, so many, so many issues in terms of the instability that they've had since then with their government and with the inflation that they've had. A couple of horrific periods. Uh, you could take uh, the Argentine peso from 2006. It was like 20 pesos to the U.S. dollar. And, and, and right now, I think it's about 66 pesos to the U.S. dollar. <laughs> um, so here's, yeah. here's the interesting thing. Inflation in Argentina from 2006 to 2020 could feasibly have risen 260%. And if you had a U.S. dollar, it wouldn't have affected you at all. Mm -hmm. Not one bit. So the price right. of their items right. in, in their currency rose. But as a retiree... If your portfolio is globally diversified, you in essence have global exposure to every one of the world's currencies. And so when you see one of these isolated countries, and it may be the country that you're living in, where inflation goes completely crazy, it goes crazy in their currency. While it goes crazy, you'll notice that their currency is dropping in basically in proportion to that. So you had the same thing in, in Germany with the Deutschmark in the mm -hmm. late 20s, early 30s, where it became essentially worthless because inflation was going through the roof, but the currency itself was dropping in proportion to that too. So the, the best way I think to really deal with this is just if you have a globally diversified investment portfolio, um, such as the asset builder models too, they're globally diversified. People might see them as, oh no, it's a US dollar investment. Uh-uh, uh-uh, it's not. It may be priced in US dollars. So, so Dimensional's right. emerging market fund might be priced in US dollars, but make no mistake, that is not a US dollar investment. That is an investment in right. emerging market currencies. So when you have yeah. a globally diversified portfolio, you are fully diversified across the, uh, across a, a whole basket of global currency. So then inflation and a dropping currency in a place that you choose to retire really shouldn't affect you at all if you're drawing okay. from that diversified portfolio. Okay. That's how, that's Which, how I view it. That's how I view it. Anyway. Yeah. 
Well, it it's I think it becomes a, a lot of times for people it can become a question of they'll they'll try to turn it into a question that's much more complicated than that. When I I agree with you, it probably doesn't need to be because they'll think, well, like if I can earn an inflation uh, an inflation adjusted adjusted or a real return here and then beat the currency exchange there, then I will end up with 10% more purchasing power. And you're like, well, but you, uh, there's so many factors that go into it that I look at it and I think, well, it's kind of an annual decision. And if you asked economists, is the US dollar going to be stronger or weaker 10 years from now? I don't know, 10 economists would give you two different answers. Five would say one thing, five another. It, it just never seems like it's something that you could uh, and I guess it would also be relative to what currency, like, where do I really want to retire? Maybe where have I invested this money to begin with? So I, I think it's, it's fair to say that it's, it's, again, goes back to have a globally diversified portfolio and then understand that there are going to be some implications depending on where you retire. And it's so right. So like, let me ask Brian, you, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was, gonna, go I was ahead. just going to say people get, they get in their own way. They overthink things. They don't mm-hmm. need to overthink things because nobody can predict what any given currency is going to do. No one can predict inflation. No one can predict where the markets are going to go. And what's hard for a lot of really smart people is a lot of really smart people think that they or someone they know can predict these things. And so they'll try to make adjustments. I've found that some of the smartest people I know tend to be, it's almost a it sounds crazy to say, but it's uh, it's inversely proportional. So the smart people tend not to be good investors because they think too much. Yeah. You know, uh, are you at all familiar with the Enneagram? <laughs> no. So it's, it's a personality test. And it's funny because my wife, uh, several years ago, she had me take this test. And, you know, it's 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 like the Briggs Myers. It's it's just. But one of the things that I found out about myself is that I find security and in information. And so what you just said is I'm one of those people who it's almost to my detriment. I will believe that if I had one more piece of information, I could have made the correct decision or I can make the correct decision in the future, which can lead me to just paralysis because I just think if I had one more piece of information, but I'm not sure what that piece of information is or where it's going to come from. So I'll spend hours overthinking things. And it's good for me to hear that from somebody like you to be reminded like, hey, there's there's not enough information in the world for you to figure this out. Right, um, right. <laughs> just relax, which is funny because like you look at a company like Renaissance Technologies, the fund uh, up uh, Jim Simmons fund. Is it Jim Simmons? Uh, the hedge fund that I, I've read that they have models that go back and use data from the 1700s. Like that's how far back they go to try and model out data. And they're phenomenally successful. Um, they don't, they're not even open to the public anymore. They just manage their own money. But what's funny is you think about that. Okay. So you've got a bunch of quantum physicists using supercomputers to predict what will happen in country A relative to country B or industry A relative to industry B. And by the way, they're you know making these predictions in nanoseconds and they're changing the prediction 
based on a new piece of information that came half a second ago. And you realize that for you to try and compete with that, you would literally end up shriveled up on the floor crying in a heap. And so it is easier sometimes to just say, okay, well, I'll, I'll accept the fact that there are some human limitations, but if I'm globally diversified, if I have something that's well thought out, and maybe not necessarily timeless because times change, but thoughtful anyway, um, it doesn't mean you're going to always be right, but it does mean that you can have some confidence that you made an intelligent, thoughtful decision. Two, there's another level of irony here. We can always find an anecdotal example of this uh, machination that's ended up rocking it, such as that particular hedge fund. Yes. Um, we yeah. had somebody could have been saying the same thing about long-term capital management in 2008, exactly. yeah. um, which then and it rocked. I mean, it had yes. it had some of the world's smartest people working yeah. it, and and it absolutely destroyed the returns of the markets and did so well until it imploded. Yeah. And, and that's yeah. why what makes this so darn challenging is you can always sift through and now find the survivor, the fund or the hedge fund that somehow ended up surviving. And we get fooled sometimes yeah. into thinking that the, the decisions that they've really made have been as a result of skill rather than oh, a large element also of luck. So, you know, yeah. when we go forward, if you were to say to me, Andrew, you have a choice now, I'm going to open this hedge fund to you and, uh, and you have a choice. You can liquidate uh, 500 grand from your portfolio of index funds and put it in here mm -hmm. or you can keep it in your index fund. I'll tell you what, statistically speaking, when I'm looking at long term evidence based results and data and probabilities, because investment's all about probability. Right. Uh, I'd keep it in my portfolio of index funds. Yeah. <laughs> I don't care about their track record. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it would be it, it would be different maybe if you said, okay, well, I have enough money to spread my risk. But, you know, I'll invest a portion of it versus something significant to me. Uh, maybe I would make a different decision. When you think about people who are maybe five years or ten years away from retirement, and if you threw out, uh, you set aside family considerations, wanting to be near grandkids, or always having wanted to live in a certain place. Um, what countries do you think people are going to really want to be retiring in in the next five, ten years, uh, based on whatever, uh, you know, political, uh, social, government policies? What countries do you look at and think, hey, this would be a place where I think people are really going to want to be? Uh, and I think, so we're looking at, like, an more than just sort of the cost, like a, a place where, where there's low cost, sure. looking at yeah. the whole package. The, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you the one that's, that's really impressed me. So I've been really interested in that, that question uh, on the whole. And, and of course, my wife and I, we typically, we, we usually end up traveling to 13 or 14 different countries per year and, and spending a bit, a, a bit of time in each often going back to different places too and then interviewing the expats that live there. But I'll tell you a place that I'm really impressed with. And it's not the cheapest place, but I'm I'm very impressed with Costa Rica. So cheaper uh cost of living generally is a bit cheaper than it is in the US, but their their government tends to be quite stable. Um they have reasonably strong 
really strong healthcare. In fact, they their life expectancy is the second highest in the Americas after Canada. So Costa Ricans live longer than Americans. Um, they do a lot of things right. It's a it's a wonderful country in terms of its climate. I'm not saying that its healthcare is better, but I think the overall relaxed atmosphere is better, and that's a thing that can create longevity in people. It does create longevity in people. So you have this variety in Costa Rica where you have um, you have mountains. And then you have little beautiful seaside villages, so you can have cooler temperatures, warmer temperatures. It really is your choice, and it's it's quite a safe place. And I, I find that the government seems to be fairly uh, fairly proactive, fairly um, strong in terms of uh, it's a really clean country. So I would put that on my short list. Uh, Panama is another favorite. They also have a strong medical system there. And on aggregate, it's also cheaper than living in the U.S. And it's a quick flight to the U.S. So it's mm. pretty easy to get from to Panama or to Costa Rica. If you don't mind the heat, I really like Malaysia. But you have to like the heat. Okay. And so you guys were giving <laughs> me, temp- you guys were giving me tex- uh, temperatures right now in Texas. And... And right. they sounded they sounded pretty uh, pretty darn <laughs> they could get pretty darn horrific <laughs> in the summer in terms of the, the temperature plus the humidity. Yes. In Malaysia, you'd really be looking at something like all year round. You'd have the same temperature. You'd be looking at about eighty degrees. I'm thinking now in terms of uh, I have to convert to Celsius here. So for in Malaysia, you're looking at thirty thirty two degrees Celsius. So what's that? Is that about eighty to eighty five? Okay, so 32 degrees Celsius is 89.6 Fahrenheit. Okay. Is that it? There we go. Uh, The equation is 32 times 9 divided by 5 plus 32. So I don't know what that is. Okay, whatever. (laughs) I thought it was was something times 2 and then plus 32 was an approximation. So, so you, your, you get, your calculation sounded like <laughs> you were trying to invent some sort of hedge fund sales pitch here, to be honest. Yeah. Like, hey, yeah. mess with me. I'm going to do 30 something <laughs> divided by nine times yeah. five. Or you can just go online. Wow. But, uh, how much is, you know, yeah, just 32 degrees Celsius. 32. <laughs> but yeah. in Malaysia, back to the temperature there, it doesn't get above that. So you're not going to get above that. Oh, well, that's okay and, then. Okay. And so the temperature there is is pretty constant year round because it's about uh, it's about a hundred miles from the equator. Yeah, it's and right on the. Yeah. And what's the humidity like? It the humidity would range between say sixty to eighty five degree uh, percent humidity. Okay. So yeah. it sounds like you guys also have a higher humidity in your summer than they do in Malaysia. Yeah. Right. So you'd have to be able to handle humidity. I mean, there's humidity there, but the cost of living is is significantly lower than Costa Rica and Panama. That the healthcare is excellent, um, and English is the first language there, so uh, everyone can everyone can understand you. If Europe's your thing, I have a really soft spot for Portugal. So again, the the cost of living in Portugal is is significantly lower than it is in the United States. It's higher than Malaysia, but it's lower than the U.S. Uh, and the weather there is fabulous. It's uh, it doesn't get too cold, and it gets really quite nice in the summer. But you're right on that uh, on that Atlantic coast, so you end up it, it 
creates a it has a, a tempering effect so it doesn't get too too crazy hot in the summer but wonderful people uh, wonderful wonderful place to be i think to retire awesome Okay. Jared, keep these in mind. They'll have changed by the time you get to retirement. But <laughs> I don't know if millennials are going to retire. But you might retire. still want to go. Go. You might want to just go visit, just just for fun. You can come visit me. I'll be retired. Hey, I'll, I'll tell you guys what I think in terms of the old idea. Like uh, some people have asked me. I think Jared, you asked me too. Um, it was either during that podcast that we were recording last week or after. You asked me what my favorite place was, and I said I. The more I see, the more I realize there is no favorite place because every place has a specific magic to it. Every yeah. place has a, yeah. a has a pocket of magic, and so for for us, and, and and this is something I would recommend to to an American retiree, especially if they are you know if they're finding that um, they may not have enough money to to supplement the lifestyle that they want during retirement, it's to spend some time. They don't have to spend all the time in a in a different country, but to spend some of their time in a different country. So you bring down the cost. So, for example, winter. Uh, why not spend mm -hmm. winter in uh, in Costa Rica, Malaysia, Panama, or southern Portugal? Do people generally not do that because they own their house and it's like, well, that's a fixed cost. And if I go somewhere else, I'm going to have to take care of my housing twice is that is that the the objection people have to doing that it's it's funny it's funny because it all depends on your circle um so okay my circle does that so when okay. my friends this is what they're all about this is what they want to this is what they want to do or this is what they are doing um so it all depends yeah. Obviously, every decision you make is going to have certain challenges. For, for one thing, I recommend people do is, for me, and again, this is just my recommendation, is not to buy a home. And, and this is really controversial advice, but I would say yeah. don't don't buy a home in Mexico. Rent it in Mexico. And yeah, there's all kinds of for me. There are all kinds of reasons why. One, you have so much you're not necessarily tied then to one specific place. It's very easy to buy a home. It may not always be easy to sell it. You may end up be yeah. dealing with all kinds of uh, legal red tape that just keeps getting thrown at you that shouldn't be thrown at you, yeah. <laughs> that, that, that yeah. for whatever reason is legitimate or not. And I'll give you other examples too, which I, I find which I find quite funny but also quite tragic. I've had friends in Mexico who have actually had their own the ownership of their home challenged. So they've gone through everything they need to do legally to buy a home, and then someone knocks on the door and says, I actually own that home. Um, I own the deed to it. You can go downtown and you can check and, and you can see. So sometimes that's legit, mm. whereby somebody <laughs> ended up not fulfilling the right paperwork to, to purchase a place. Other times, Somebody goes around a series of, of bribes. They influence a number of people to actually end up with the deed on a home that they don't really own, that they never really purchased. That's insane. So this is an example. I'm telling but, you guys an actual example of a couple yeah. that I met in Mexico that had owned their place for 15 years, and this is what happened to them. That is crazy. I've never Which heard of it, that. It, it, I, I guess, would it be more likely that, I mean, would they would they have targeted these people because they're expats and it's like oh, easier 100%. to, yeah. 
yeah. And, 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 Which, and, and the story ended up well, it ended up good in the end. I mean, they, they, uh, they had, they had a good lawyer and, but they went through so much yeah. heartache as a result of it. So for me, um, yeah. for me, I think if it's a place like Thailand or it's a place like Malaysia, um, rent it, don't own it. Canada, when we're talking first world, you know, if you want to spend six months in yeah. Canada and that's what you really want to do is spend the summers there. Yeah. I think you feel fairly confident in a first world country that when you buy a place, it's yours. But whenever you're looking at developing market countries, you just, you just never know. Yeah. Well, so when, when people, like if somebody goes over there, let's say you go to uh, Portugal and you, you buy a place, theoretically, if you're going to be there for, you know, six months out of the year, you're, you're looking to rent it out right? It, it's supposed to be income producing the other six months of the year. Right. Is that uh, okay? Because I can't imagine that most people can afford. Well, I mean, I can't imagine that people could, but it, it would seem more prudent. And then do they rent out their, like your friends, the circle you're in, do most people rent out the place here as well when they're, you know, in their, in their second location? Well, yeah, what do they you know, do with their existing home? I'll tell you one thing that's really quite popular is if they own an existing home with, uh, with a suite in it. And so mm -hmm. if they own the suite, they, when, they are in, when they're in Austin, um, they, might yeah. live in, they might live in the suite or they might live in the main home and they'll have a renter in the suite. So the, having that, you're always going to have somebody who's going to be able to at least keep an eye on the property. They're in the property itself. So it's not like a, a home that's completely been abandoned. That's one thing I notice a lot of people doing. If you're obviously, you know, you're going to be away for at least 12 months plus, you're not coming back to your, to your home in the U.S., um, then, yeah, it makes some sense to rent it out. But, uh, but many people will do this when, where they'll be like, this is going to be our lifestyle. So um, let's build a, like an, almost like an in-law suite or let's build yeah. another property that has a, a, another suite attached to it. That's a brilliant way of doing it. I've, I've, uh, I think it's interesting just because as Americans, uh, well, with our parents and our parents getting older and we're all kind of hitting that place where we're thinking about how to take care of our parents. And then one of the things I've thought about is having uh, a, like a guest house or a small house uh, if you have a property and if you live in a neighborhood where that's allowed um, and you don't violate, you know, tons of stuff, but then that would then translate into, okay. And if I want to retire, I can live there, rent my home out and have my own place to live and then travel. And, you know, pretty much the house is going to pay for itself and you're just living in the guest house or the kind of what you're describing, the in-law suite. Right, right. Which, which takes care of, uh, which takes care of the, um, I guess, the parent issue and then allows you to have a retirement. But it doesn't take care of both at the same time, for sure. Right. Yeah, you have to, so. you have to, you have to choose one or the other. I'll tell you one thing. Um, that, that many people also do is they do online. You can find all kinds of house swap arrangements. Yes. And there are loads of people that are just, they're like, you know, they really like the idea of travel, 
but travel costs yep. money or at least in, you know being able to immerse themselves in a completely different culture maybe they want to learn another language or they just love just the idea of of giving themselves loads of variety so they join uh, sort of a, a house swap network and yep. they may end up swapping a house with someone in the south of France for 6 months right where they Which use is, your car and you use their car and you you know you, you kind of you look after their property they look after yours we've done that for a week or two weeks um, and we've but we've always done it with friends and yet we have those same friends who have done it with you know strangers on the internet and it's the same thing it's like you said we'll use your car we'll use your house you use our car you use our house and it, it's funny because you think maybe it's because maybe I think because I'm just naturally suspicious I assume everybody's gonna scam me and it's gonna be you know and every experience they've ever had has been great they've said no people are honest they've you know they have what they have they're honest about what they're they're getting what you're getting into and it works out well so yeah you can read reviews on these people too you can contact references people that they've dealt with and it is kind of nice when there's somebody that they're not brand new to this and so you, yeah. you know that they've got some kind of resume well, Andrew, uh, we can't thank you enough for, for hanging out with us for, for this time and, and talking with Michael and uh, with us. It's it's such a pleasure, and you make us look really smart, and you have been for since I've worked here. So we just really want to appreciate you uh, and the time you take and the expertise you offer consistently. Really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. It really has been. Yeah, for me too. I've enjoyed it. For links to Andrew's books, website, and articles, check out the show notes at assetbuilder.com slash podcast. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not to be construed as an offer, solicitation, recommendation, or endorsement of any particular security, product, or service. For more information, visit assetbuilder.com.